Welcome to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. You're listening to the Essential RX segment hosted by Dr. Lemaitre Scott. The Sickle Cell Community Consortium powers the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Please remember that the information you hear on the Vitamin SC3 podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. The information shared is not to be used as medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Stay tuned to hear the full episode. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world, as well as um, independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is, what we've always done, is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this. And we are on. Welcome, everybody, to our next episode of the Vitamin SC3 podcast, where we discuss the science of sickle cell. And today, I have a very important guest with me that I think it's going to help us change the narrative and how we approach sickle cell disease social issues that come up from time to time. And I know that are very common within the sickle cell population. Up until now, we've talked about everything from a scientific or a health scientific aspect of dealing with the science of sickle cell disease, which is very important because we need to understand those um, ground rules or, you know, put everybody on the same playing field as it relates to the scientific aspect. But what's oftentimes not discussed is the social science aspects that come along with dealing with sickle cell disease. And I think that we need to focus more so in that area. And that's what this particular podcast episode is all about. My name is Dr. Lemetra Scott. I'm the executive director of Breaking the Sickle Cell Cycle Foundation. And I have with me here today, Dr. Smith from Marty Health, who is going to help us understand those social determinants of health that may be impacted or impact sickle cell disease. So Dr. Smith, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here talking with us today. Well, first of all, thank you, Dr. Scott, for inviting me. It's a a tremendous opportunity to be here in Sickle Cell Awareness Month talking about a very important subject. So I'm Dr. Michael Smith. I'm a heart and lung surgeon by training. I'm a clinical researcher, the former Deputy Chief Health Equity Officer for CVS Health uh, and and founder and CEO of Marty Health. Uh, Marty is our health equity mission that uses community-based participatory research and technology-enabled process improvement to try to reduce or eliminate health equity, beginning with, but not exclusive of sickle cell. So that gives us, we talk about social determinants of health and those terms of health equity and eliminating or attempting to eliminate health disparities. That has come up a lot now, especially since we've entered into the COVID era and and now kind of post COVID. But when we talk about health equity, 
the beginning phases of that and how we look at housing, economics, um, neighborhoods, how all of those things, even your social interactions, um, interact and kind of impact sickle cell disease and how it can change the course of your disease, actually. So you talked about um, Marty and Marty Health. How did this even come to be? Because you said that you are a, a star cardiothoracic surgeon. You worked with CBS Health. How did Marty come out of that? Marty Health, I'm sorry. So that's a great question. And I'll, I'll try to give you the short answer. Uh, okay. I, I think it was destiny, quite frankly. Uh, I've been in this space uh, managing uh, patients who are in the socially at-risk population my entire career. Uh, first as a vascular surgeon, then as a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, and, and seen firsthand the disparity issues that we're all, all too familiar with. But then I had an opportunity to pivot into managed care, and that was 12 years ago, where I got to see things from a totally different uh, angle. And it really did uh, help me appreciate the, the dynamics around burden of illness, the medical and behavioral burden of illness, but equally important, and to the point you mentioned earlier, the social determinant burdens of illness. And those are huge factors. And we know from excellent data that only about 20% of what drives what we think of as medical costs is actually from the medical condition. It's those determinants you just mentioned. And, and you know, we had a, an acronym that we used back when I was at CVS, health, H for, for housing in general, for the E to, to talk about education, because we know to your point, housing is a huge impact. Where you live and, and the immediate environment you live in is a huge impact. Education is a huge impact. One of the things we learned in, in our work in Ohio is that 40% of the kids who enter kindergarten in Ohio are unable to compete at a kindergarten level. That's a huge uh, disadvantage. And the data shows in Ohio that those are the kids that go on to be at greater risk for social determinant issues uh, and health issues. Uh, the age. A for access, and we talk about you know access to food, but it's not just access to food, it's access to, to healthy choices. So not just the, the food itself, but nutrition. You know, There's a nutrition conference going on in the White House right now, and that's a big issue that they talk about. Uh, the, the L is for labor, and labor is really sort of a euphemism for income, because if you have a job, you're much, likely, much more likely to have insurance, and if you're not, if you have a job, you're much more likely to have uh, income so that you can afford to do those things that you want to do. But it's also access to healthy choices around where you live and, and, and the environment in which you work and, and a whole bunch of things to drive that access issue. And then we talk about T, the transportation. We know that that's a huge issue. There's some people who really have transportation insecurity, and it's a major factor in their health. Uh, the, the last T, excuse me, the last H is for health, health in general, the quality of the health care that you're being uh, given, the quality of the health care that you're available to get. We talk about the fact that there's a disparity between rurality and urban areas. We know that proximity to tertiary and quaternary care hospitals is a huge factor. So the long answer to your question, but we think that those social determinants are important. And part of the reason I got into this was because of that. But let me just tell you that the reason it was available to me was because people before me saw this tremendous need and opportunity. Uh, a company by the name of High, High Alpha Innovations, which has a, essentially an incubator group that looks at opportunities to have an impact in some of the important areas in, in the world, not just healthcare, but inclusive of healthcare. And they had identified there was a real need around care coordination for complex care illness. 
uh, and they had reached out to a, a hospital partner uh, or a hospital who became a partner, OSF, the Order of St. Francis in Peoria, Illinois, and they both agreed that there was a strong need for looking at care coordination in the socially at-risk population, and they agreed that the group that had the biggest health disparity in this country is the sick population, and the data certainly supports that. So 37% of all of those patients are going to be hospitalized in a given, given year. Their hospital rate is 1,300 admissions per 1,000, which is a huge number when you think about it. 36% readmission rate. So they, they agreed that there was a real need. And I was fortunate enough that they reached out to me to, for consideration. Seven years ago, I had written a patent about this very same issue, care coordination for complex care management patients. So for me, it was destiny. And I'll tell you one other thing. They chose the name Marty, and we think it's wonderful. We think that Marty allows us to remember that our mission aligns with that of Dr. Martin Luther King. He had a famous quote where he said, of all the forms of inequity, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and the most inhuman because it often leads to physical death. So we want everybody that joins Marty to understand that that's the mission we're on, to address that inequity because it's an injustice. Wow. And to know that you, you tied it all the way back to, you know, Martin Luther King. And we all know that Martin Luther King made some very profound statements and he was basically the originator of a large, a large number of activities that have taken place in our country to try to, I won't say eliminate, but try to eliminate some of those disparities and injustices that are faced by um, minority populations in such a large degree. So to know that we are, that your organization is walking in the footprints of something that is so profound and has such a, a huge effect on our, our community is huge, I think. And to know that, you know, the sickle cell disease population has risen to that level where people are looking, people are seeing and no longer turning a blind eye. For me, that in and of itself, um, it, you deserve kudos for that and for the investors that were looking at various complex conditions and to, again, see the need that exists within the sickle cell population, I think speaks volumes and it means that, you know, we're progressing in the right direction to improve outcomes overall for patients who have sickle cell disease. So before we started um, our conversation a little bit ago, you were telling me about a focus group that you had last night. So tell me about this focus group and what was the purpose of it? Great question. So I'll, I'll preface that comment by saying that, that the way Marty plans to really have an impact is through two key innovative opportunities to use the science that we've learned from uh, health equity around community-based participatory research so that we can engage people in a different way. Instead of saying, well, we've got this great program that's going to help you to go into the community and ask the community, what do you see as the burning platform? What is your need? How do you see that need being addressed? And how do you see us helping you address that need? The data shows that when you take that approach, you get a much higher level of engagement, you get a much higher level of participation, and you get the results you want. So that's the first piece. The mm -hmm. second piece, equally important, is the concept of having a technology-enabled process automation and process improvement uh, software so that we can build something that really does help improve the ability to share information uh, omnidirectionally, just helps us to identify gaps in care, to identify burden of illness, to allocate resources, to reduce avoidable episodes of treatment. And we are really blessed in our organization 
to have a chief technical officer who's been in this space for over 20 years. He's worked for Fortune 500 companies and startups. He's helped exit three startups already. Uh, Richard Desarmes is just an amazing guy. And again, High Alpha was, was instrumental in us identifying him and convincing him to join us. He, in fact, had a family member, a cousin, who had recently passed from sickle cell. So his commitment was real before, and it's only gotten stronger. So to your point, last evening, we addressed that first piece, that community engagement, working with the Sickle Cell Foundation of Georgia and their medical director, Dr. Otis Powell. We uh, engaged one of the local hematologists who had a large practice and reached out to them about uh, introducing us to his practice. They reached out and got 17 of their members to attend uh, an event. It was an amazing uh, experience for me. Uh, mm -hmm. I've certainly known about sickle cell as, as a physician for years uh, and have treated patients with sickle cell, but to be in a room with those warriors and hear the stories that they were telling was amazing. And it's, as I was saying, two big themes jumped out early on. Uh, one was that, you know, Dr. Smith, this is great what you guys want to do. It sounds so amazing. You know, we people have shattered our dreams so many times. We've heard about all these wonderful things people are going to do for us, but we don't feel like there's a real commitment. There's been a real commitment to actually addressing our needs. So if, if you're coming here to help address our needs, we welcome you. But but we just don't want another group to come in and figure out how they can exploit us. And, and that resonated mm -hmm. with me. And, it, and rightfully so. They have every right to make that statement. And the other thing they said was that one of the things we need this app to do is to give us the ability to share within the sickle cell community our combined experiences about the way we're treated at hospitals. Because we're going to some hospitals and we are being treated like pariahs. And we want to be able, in the same way that a, uh, that a uh, uh, hotel.com critiques uh, hotels or an open table critiques restaurants, we want to mm -hmm. be able to critique the, the quality of care and the quality of the engagement we're having with the providers of that care in real time so that our colleagues will know if, if, if we're having this repeated experience within our community, then we shouldn't be frequenting those hospitals. And I told them that not only did I agree with them, but I think that's something we can definitely put in there. Uh, the, the rest of the conversation was equally profound, and I enjoyed it immensely. But it was great to hear firsthand that, that these people are ready and willing for, for assistance. And we talked about before that this reminds us in many ways of the story in the Bible of the lady with the issue of blood. You know, 12 years, she had gone bleeding. She'd gone to doctor after doctor. She, she used up all of her resources. Mm -hmm. But she heard that Jesus was coming to town. And she said, I have nothing to lose. So I'm going to try to get to him. And the story says, you know, she couldn't get through the crowd. There were so yeah. many. And people saw her and assumed that she was unclean because, you know, they knew about her issue of blood. And in the same way, some of these people feel like they're looked at differently. They're, mm -hmm. they're seen as unclean. And so she made her way through that crowd despite all of that. And she said she just touched the hem of his garment and suddenly she felt that she had access to power she'd never had before. And so we, Jesus said, I felt something come out of me. And so she said, it was me. I, I, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. And he said to her, your faith is what healed you. And so our point is, we're not pretending to be Christ. We want to just be the hem of the garment. We want to be something they can reach out to. And with faith, work with us to try to make their lives better. And last night, I felt that we were getting one step closer to being the hem of the garment. Wow. That was a very profound experience that you just 
had in the way that, you know, you equated it to biblical stories. And I know that a lot of people within the sickle cell community rely very heavily on faith and religion to get through these troublesome times. So I want to ask you a, a question or two about the data that is being housed in this app. I heard you say that you want to, one, create kind of like a survey, so to speak, where people can document what their experiences were in said healthcare system. So where does that information go? Because I know that amongst um, people themselves, word of mouth, sharing, that is that can make or break a business, what people have to say as far as the perceptions go. Will this app and will the data that's gleaned from this app, will it be shared within healthcare systems to help them, you know, notice that, hey, you're doing something wrong. Your quality of care is not what you think it is based on this data that we have from the recipients of your quality of care. So would this information or is there a expectation that this information will be used to push the needle forward as far as healthcare delivery services go? Again, an excellent question. And yes, the short answer to your question, to your question is yes. We believe that the key for us being successful is to understand that we're all in the health information business today. And, and the way we collect that information, that disparate health information from multiple sources, mm-hmm. the way we aggregate that information, the way we analyze, report, and ultimately utilize that information is really what makes this work. And so our goal is to become the, the subject matter experts in the collection, aggregation, analysis, reporting, and utilization of disparate health data for socially at-risk populations beginning with sickle cell. Mm-hmm. To, to your example, of course, part of it is, is the quality performance of the hospitals. But even before that, we know that there's a, 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 a dearth of medical data that's collected for, for sickle cell as compared to other socially at-risk populations or complex uh, populations. There is a national surveillance registry for hemophilia and cystic fibrosis. It doesn't exist today for sickle cell. There's a national clinical uh, clinical data registry for hemophilia today and cystic fibrosis. It doesn't exist for sickle cell. And that data that's being mined from those two amazing sources is helping to drive innovation in Mm. medical therapy. And so the, the absence of just having that data alone puts us at a disadvantage. But in addition to the medical and behavioral data, there's a wealth of social determinant data that we're just not collecting. So one of the things that we hope to do is to really take this opportunity to raise awareness, first in the sickle cell community, about the importance of collecting and aggregating and analyzing this data, but then to push it out to others to say, here's the proof, here's the documentation that we have a long way to go in the disparity space for people who have sickle cell disease. And just, just one quick example that I had the pleasure of speaking to a young lady who runs one of the sickle cell organizations in Maryland. And she said, everybody thinks we have a small number in, in Maryland. There are over 4,000 sickle cell patients in Maryland, but we have such a poor ability to account for them that that's not heard of, that's not uh, discussed. If that's true, if she's right, I believe she is, they would be one of the largest populations of sickle cell for any state. And they're not even listed as one of the top states. So it's just tremendous opportunity 
to, to identify the, the medical impediments to, to good health for this population. The good data that shows that roughly only about 50% of these kids who, who are supposed to be getting routine immunizations mm-hmm. are getting their routine immunizations. That's, that's a manageable problem. And we know that they're already critically at risk. So the idea that we're not doing what it takes to get them the immunizations you know, is, is a disservice. We know that there's a medication adherence issue. And rather than, to, than accuse the people of being non-compliant, we need to ask ourselves why. Why would a mother or a father who loves their child not want them to be an appropriate medication? Is there an education opportunity? Are we failing to educate them about the important need for this? Are we failing to educate them about the downstream risk associated, the comorbidities associated with not taking it? Or is there another issue? I've, I've learned that you know, eligibility on insurance is a huge issue. Last night, we heard people say, you know, they've been dropped off the Medicaid roll and have to wait months to get back on. These are problems that we can address. I'll, I'll say one more thing along these lines. We had this conversation last evening. If you have two children and both of them want, to, want something to ride in and you give them both a bike and one of them has legs and the other one doesn't, that's an equal solution. But if you give one with legs a bike and the other one something else to, to move around in, that's an equitable solution. So we need to stop applying equal treatment to people who already have a huge burden of illness. And we need to be thinking about how we can be equitable in the care we provide. Wow. That that whole differentiation between what's equal in healthcare versus health equity, that speaks volumes. And I appreciate the fact that, you know, your organization and, and the views that you all have highlight that point and you don't just continue to move on with where we've been with the status quo and just making sure that people have access. It's more than just about having access. You also need to bring to the table the tools to be able to utilize this access that's being given. So I really, really appreciate that you all are taking a different approach, so to speak, and how to address an issue that has been prevalent in our country for over 100 years. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's mind-blowing that any condition can be in existence for 100 years in the United States of America, where we are so technologically advanced and we have all of these different innovations, but yet we're 100 years behind when it comes down to creating conditions and outcomes and therapies and treatments that are, you know, helping this particular disease state population. So that I want to to say thank you and kudos to you. You've mentioned at the beginning of our talk that you have the concept of community-based participation as a market differentiator for Marty. Can you share examples of what that really means? That's a great question. You know, to me, the best example I can think of is the Rosenwald schools. So uh, in the early 1900s, uh, Booker T. Washington met with Julius Rosenwald. He was then the president of Sears and Roebuck. He had heard that Rosenwald had been giving large sums of money to various groups, and he went to talk to him about getting money for education. And in the conversation, he pointed out that there were large areas in the South part of the country where African-Americans had no access to formal education whatsoever. And he said, you know, if if you really want to make a huge impact, why not invest some of your time and your talent and your resources into that? And to his credit, Rosenwald said, I think that's admirable. 
But the way that I like to give is I want to make sure that if I'm giving to a community that somebody in the community or people in the community are willing to give something as well. So if you can get people in the community to make a commitment of time or talent or resources, then I'll do the same. And so they went into these communities and said, Julius Rosenwald is working with us to build these schools. And he wants to know what our level of commitment will be. Some people provided land because they had land. Some people said, I'll help with the actual building of the building. Some people said, well, I'm a certified teacher. I'd love to teach there. Whatever they could bring, whatever they could uh, provide, they made a commitment. And when they got a sufficient commitment, then Rosenwald went ahead and built the school. That model produced 4,700 schools in the United States for a period of over 50 years. And one of the people who graduated from those schools was Congressman John Lewis. Talk about the ripple effect. So the point of that story is we want to go into the community and say, we need to partner with you to fix this problem. As we said to them last night, my colleague, the CTO, he's brilliant. He can build a fancy smancy tool. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't meet their need, they might as well be getting a bicycle with no legs. So I got to know that we're building something that meets their needs. We, one of the things they've talked about is asynchronous communication. We shouldn't have to be on the phone with a care coordinator, you know, to find out the lab results, to find out, you know, how we change the schedule for a scheduled appointment. You and I know that technology exists today. It's the application of, techno- of that technology in a way that helps the people who are most at need that we need to focus on. And if we fail at that, then this doesn't work. But if we succeed at that, if we get those people to say, this is how we really improved our care. This is how we kept our immunization schedule in place. This is how we kept our, pay, our kids on medication. This is how we made sure that our child got transcranial Dopplers when it was supposed to. That's a huge issue in the sickle cell population because one of the ladies mentioned last night, she put a kid in school and noticed he was having learning problems and nobody had even talked to her about the fact that it's considered standard of care to do transcranial Dopplers on young children with sickle cell because they have a higher risk for cerebral infarcts. So we gotta be able to to build what they need, not what we're good at building. And and so that's why the community-based participatory model to me is the way to go. And again, there's, there's a ton of data now, 10 years of data to show that when you go into the community and help them identify the problem and help them identify the solution, and then build or work with them, because it's not always a software solution, work with them to put a solution in place. It's a sustainable model. And, it, and that's what we're trying to do here. So I like that you um, have the community-based participation as kind of like the, the grassroots or ground level of everything that's built from that point forward. One of the concerns that I've heard from the sickle cell community is that companies have an interest in the data that they have to share. They sit and they meet, they share this data and then they're gone and they don't hear from them again because the originator company, they feel like they've gotten what they needed. And, you know, the the person that got you to this point is an afterthought now. So what makes Marty different? Will the people that you initially involved to get the ball rolling Will they continually be involved in those discussions as far as development goes? Another brilliant question. So one of the things we said to them last night, 
is that we're hoping that this is an introductory meeting. It, this is not just about getting you to fill out the survey because the survey is gonna help us prioritize what the features are gonna be in the tool that we built. But the next step of that equally important is to take it back to end users and say, did we get it right? Did we meet your expectations? So we asked each one of those 17 people, what would be your level of interest in serving as one of our test subjects? When we get this prototype available, what would be your interest in serving as one of our user groups to help us figure out if this meets the needs? And to their credit, every single one of them said yes, because I think you're right. They're saying, well, we want to participate. We, you're trying to help us. To your other point about the data, another recurring theme was, yes, there are lots of good hospital systems that have their own information management system, but they don't share data easily. So when I go see somebody at hospital A, and then I end up at the ER at hospital B, there's no sharing. That omnidirectional sharing of data, we think, is a critical step for Marty, and we think it's a market differentiator for Marty. So one of the things we're talking about is how we build this technology so that when a patient shows up at a hospital where they may not have a history, they can use the Marty app to push the critical information that the doctor needs. These are the medications that have commonly been shown to control my pain. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, the process that's been used to manage me in the past. These are the sites where IVs are easy to place for me. This is the type, the size of the catheter that they commonly use. That's easy to get. And, and those things are part of a, a clinical record in a hospital anyway. So why don't we start collecting that for the individual patient and push it to the providers at, in a, at the time they need it so that these patients can get customized care. They can get equitable, not equal care. I like that. I like that omnidirectional sharing of information. And I like that you allow it, you know, you it's in the patient's hand. And also, I want to know about how are you pushing it to the providers? And I, I say that because when we talk about the just the basic NHLBI guidelines for the treatment of sickle cell disease. They're out there, they're available for everybody to use, but yet and still, many healthcare providers don't even access those guidelines when it comes down to the treatment of sickle cell disease, but yet they deny patients appropriate care. Why? I don't know, because there are guidelines that tell you exactly what to give, when to give, and how often to give. So you create this great access tool that the goal is to make healthcare more equitable, but how do you ensure that the providers would even use it? What's their incentive? Another great question. So, so one of the things I learned during my sojourn in managed care was how important appropriate use criteria are when properly utilized. And, you know, most of the appropriate use criteria is essentially are guidelines written by subject matter experts about best practice standards of care. And to your point last night, somebody made that point. There are guidelines for every cancer, that, uh, how to manage it. Why aren't there guidelines for sickle cell? And of course, someone said, as you just said, well, they are. People just aren't using them. So we need to build into this. And it may not be in the prototype. I want to be clear. This is not, you know, a... a a destination for one place, it's a journey we're on. But the idea is that we can track uh, appropriate use criteria and whether or not doctors are adhering to appropriate use criteria. That's not hard to do because the clinical records are there. 
I've learned that from managed care, reviewing charts for medical necessity, that that information is housed in most of those records. So we need to work to make sure that that information is accessible in a way that it can be used. That's that whole idea of transparency. You've heard us talk in the past about health literacy, access, and transparency being the, the three big pillars that we want to build this on. We have to make sure that the patients are aware of the best practice for managing uh, a toddler with sickle cell who has a certain burden of illness, whether it's a medical, behavioral, or social determinant. There, there are protocols. And one of the things we think will come out of this over time is that as we get more and more information into the system, we'll be able to identify those, pro those uh, profiles. And that's where the predictive analytics piece really becomes important. So that down the road, we'll say, listen, your child meets this profile, and we know that there's an 80% probability when they meet this profile that they're likely to be at risk for cerebral infarct. So we're going to get their transcranial Doppler sooner. That's the kind of availability of data that we think is going to make this market differentiating. But the key is those things we talked about. First, you got to collect the data. And to your point, we can't collect all the data we need to do this well without the help of the sickle cell community. We've got to make sure that we're aggregating the data in a way that it's accessible in a HIPAA compliant way. But if you're not aggregating the data well, you can't look for relationships that you don't know exist. Right. I, I'll just briefly tell you about a colleague of mine who put out a $3 million award, the Merkin Prize, one of my mentors. He said, here's my claims data. Here's, I've got 10 years of it. I'll give you eight. I'm going to keep the other two. If you can predict what happened in the last two years, I'll give you $3 million. If you can get a 70% correlation, nobody got closer than 0.46% because it's impossible to predict outcomes based on claims data alone. Right. Claims data only tell you what happened at the end. It doesn't tell you the, the steps that were taking place before you got to the end um, and whether those step. were the right steps anyway to take. Um, and our like best data shows that only a third of the people who are driving costs today Mm -hmm. will be the ones driving costs next year. So we've okay. got to get better at the predictive analytics of that. So it sounds like you are very, very passionate about Marty and you you got the the notion or the, the golden ticket, which means that the, the FUBU statements for us by us, you can't make anything for us if you don't include us in it. So you've got the sickle cell community as an integral part of anything moving forward. And it, it sounds like, you know, we, we still are reliant on uptake from medical providers, healthcare systems. And I, I understand that what you're saying is that this is a journey. We've got the first two parts on board, meaning you, Marty, all of the, the sources that are backing you and believing in the project, the sickle cell community and providing their input. And now the only piece is, you know, like I said, the healthcare provider piece in uptake. Is there an uh, approach to do outreach to some of the health, the provider organizations to get their buy-in, to have them a seat at the table as well so that they understand how important this is? It's critical. And, and again, I have to applaud OSF. For, for taking the lead. We didn't have to convince them of the value proposition. Mm -hmm. One of the great things that came out of last night's meeting is that one of the attendees was actually a Peoria, Illinois resident who had been treated at OSF as a child. And he spoke glowingly about his experience there. So, but you're absolutely right. We know 
it's been documented that there is bias around the care of patients based on their culture, ethnicity, and race. We'd be not denying that is, is ridiculous. We know that there's bias around gender and sexual orientation. We know there's bias around rurality and, and urban uh, lifestyles. We know those things. So the more we can identify those things on the front end and train people around them to understand that bias is a natural thing. It, it, it's mm-hmm. an inherited thing that we all have. And in many ways, the, the people who believe that it was a protective mechanism for us as we evolved as, as, as humans. But, but to accept that we're biased and then to be able to accept that and move forward is the key. All of us have that. There was a study years ago where they asked cardiologists about managing particular cardiovascular diseases. So, and there was this uncertainty. So they went to a national cardiovascular meeting. They had four people who were actors, two male, two female. You may have heard this, one black, one white. And they read the exact same script. And then they brought doctors in, the cardiologists into the booth and they had them interview the patient and propose treatment. And of course, you already know what happened. The white males got it that proposed for interventional therapy at a much higher rate than anybody else. The, uh, the white females second, the black males actually were third and black females for the exact same constellation of symptoms were referred for medical therapy over intervention over and over and over again. So we know it's real. It's right. not about blaming or castigating people. It's about accepting that reality and then putting to the best of our ability, putting processes in place to reduce or mitigate that bias. Wow. That right there, I think, is a game changer. And it can be applicable to all interactions in regards to healthcare. And I often tell people this as well when I do, um, what do you call them, continuing educations or if I'm doing a speaking engagement somewhere, I have to remind people of their personal biases that may be in existence that are impacting their ability to provide that equitable care that they may not even be aware of. And if, cause if you ask the person, are you biased? Are you racist? Are you judgmental? Then off the top, they're going to say, no, that's not, well, most people, they would say, no, that's not me. That's not how I practice medicine. But when a sickle cell patient shows up in your ER and they are of minority descent and they ask you for a specific medication, and you automatically look at them and because they don't look like they're in pain, then they came requesting a specific, very large amount of a narcotic. Then your alarms may be triggering to you to say, this person is a drug seeker. And inevitably, because of those biases that you have, you automatically you know, provide less than standard care for this particular patient that you think is somebody that what they call a frequent flyer or somebody, you know, that's, you know, filled with drama and they just came to the ER or you say, well, we don't treat sickle cell patients with narcotics in the ER. These are all statements that I've heard from the sickle cell community when it comes down to trying to receive care, the biases that they have to face in the interim. So I often tell a lot of of healthcare providers that are in the audience, again, you know, check your biases because as you said, it's something that is innate within us. So make sure that your systems that are in place are not perpetuating those biases and making the condition worse. I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. And and I think if we're going to be totally honest, 
there are structural impediments that have been here historically mm-hmm. that are part of that problem. A, a large number of these patients have come from of economic backgrounds that aren't as affluent. And so there mm-hmm. is a perception that, af- that less affluent people are more likely to be drug seekers. When we know today there's a huge opioid crisis in this country that has a totally different complexion, if you're part right, of my apology, right. than one would expect. And it, it, we, many of us have made the observation that the opioid crisis didn't become important in our society until a certain group of people seemed to be mm-hmm. more uh, at, uh, disadvantaged by it. But we know mm-hmm. that that's a statement of fact. We know that, that there are a large number of people who are drug seekers in our community. But it's also equally true that it is very, it's not standard of care to assume that there is a laboratory test that can determine level of pain. And last night I heard what I've heard from so many other people in social media, that a doctor walked into the room, evaluated me, drew some labs, came back and told me my lab test did not show that I was in pain. I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon. I've never used a lab test to determine pain in my life. And so I just think that that mindset is a, is a dangerous thing. And if we're not willing to, to acknowledge it, we're not going to get very far. So I think we do have to have a level of basic training for those mm-hmm. of us who are providers in healthcare about the biases that we normally are encountering as part of our reality. And then to ask ourselves, before we make that decision, if this were my daughter, if this mm-hmm. were my father, if this was my sister, would I make the same decision? And I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do. I, I, I hope that I spent most of my clinical practice asking that question of myself and answering it appropriately. Right. I agree. When you make it more personal, then it takes on a, a whole different meaning because again, you you can relate to the situation when it's somebody that's close to you. So I think that Marty's on the right track in terms of where it wants to go, the problems that it sees, and the people that are part of the solution. Quite honestly, are all gathered at the table. So what do you see as the future of Marty? Where where is Marty ninety days from now, a year from now, three years from now? So hopefully 90 days from now, with the help of uh, the sickle cell community, uh, we've tested a a prototype and we've demonstrated at least directionally that that prototype is impacting the key performance indicators around care coordination. Are we reducing avoidable episodes of care and are we improving quality? I mean, if if we don't do that, it doesn't work. If we do that, then we're off to the racetrack. We, we not only uh, validate this for, for sickle cell, which is important, but then we look at other markets as well. Mm-hmm. You know, from an economic standpoint, sickle cell is a relatively small player, $826 million in medical costs because it's only a small population, high burden, but a small population. But asthma is a $50 billion industry with the same disparity issues, the same population of socially mm-hmm. at-risk people have the greatest burden of asthma. And, and so what it's only logical then that we ask ourselves, is that the next step for, for Barney? Do we focus on that? The dual eligible population, 10 million people in this country who are dual eligible, who by all accounts are getting some of the worst care coordination in the country. Mm-hmm. 
And we're spending an average of $2,800 per member per month on that population. And the data shows that if you get them in any kind of decent care management, there's a 15 to 20% savings. Is that the opportunity for Marty? I think the sky's the limit because as I said, my whole interest seven years ago and the thing that made this so attractive to me is that assessing complex care for patients who are at the greatest risk is critical if we're gonna to move to a value-based model of care. One of the, the impediments to hospitals moving from fee-to-service to, to value-based is they don't feel that they can manage a population. Right now they're in the acute inpatient business and we're asking them to go into the population health management business. But you and I know it's all about managing those, that top group. It's that top 1% that's gonna drive 20% of their medical costs. The top 5% is gonna drive 50%. The top 20% are gonna drop 80%. So understanding how to manage the 1%, the 5%, the 20% is the alchemy of value-based population health management. And that's why Marty, I think is important because if we are successful in getting people to see a pathway for, for a sustainable and financially feasible model for managing complex illness, then value-based population health management moves further and faster. Wow. So I think you've got your, your work cut out for you. And I think that um, you're really going to change some lives um, for the better. And I say that not only for sickle cell patients, but their caregivers, their families, the employers. I say that because it's a snowball effect. A healthy patient is a patient that is able to participate in society and their daily activities of living. That means they can go to school. They can go to work. They can be productive. That means that family member that is responsible for taking care of them, they can do the same. They can go to school. They can go to work. They're, you know, it, it lessens, you know, one of the things that they would probably have been worried or concerned about, you know, it, it, it lightens the burden for them. That employer now doesn't have to worry as much about their employee calling out from work. So, I mean, it's it's a win-win overall, whether you are directly impacted because you have sickle cell disease or you're indirectly impacted because you are a caregiver or associated with the person who has sickle cell disease in some way, shape or fashion, because I can almost guarantee you 1000%, no matter the, the color of your skin or the country of your origin or who or what ethnic group you identify with, sickle cell disease is impacted in all of those areas in some kind of way. So it would behoove all of our society members to come on board and support the Marty Health Initiative that is going on right now. So I know you said that you had a focus group last night. What if people are interested in sharing their thoughts with you and they want to participate as well and be a part of this beta phase of cohort? How can people get in contact with you if they are interested in doing this? Thank you for asking. Uh, they can go to our website, Marty, M-A-R-T-I-H-E-A-L-T-H, H-E-A-L-T-H, yeah, MartyHealth.com, and they can fill out a form, and that will identify them as somebody who has an interest in what we're doing, and if they wish to express an interest in being part of a development team, we would love to have them participate. But either way, we'll make sure that we're sharing information with them about how, where we're going, and just one more point about the story that you mentioned about a year from now, two of the, the uh, fathers who were there last night 
made the point that one of the most difficult things that they experience is being out playing with their son or daughter and wanting to participate at a higher level and feeling like they just can't. And in one case, the guy said that the son turned him and said, dad, are you okay? And he's like, I'm the dad. What am I supposed to say? Son, I'm fine. So if a year from now, somebody says to me, because we used Marty, because we had the resources of Marty, I was able to participate more fully and then more richly as a father, as a mother in the, in the growth and development and, and enjoyment of my child's life, then we've really hit it out of the park. Wow. All righty. Well, I appreciate you for joining us here today, Dr. Smith, to talk about the state of health equity in sickle cell disease. And for anybody that's out there listening, if you want to be a part of some groundbreaking um, activities basically taking place, you can be on the forefront of changing the perspective on how sickle cell disease is treated in our society. And, you know, some people say uh, uh, your thoughts can be, you know, worth a penny for your thoughts. This is a situation where your thoughts are worth, you know, it's, you can't put a value on this. There's a, there's not a dollar amount that could, that you can associate with you sharing your experiences. And as a result, you're able to change the trajectory of somebody's life that has sickle cell disease as an end result of this project. That I think is, is taking something and doing for the greater good. That's what I think the payoff is in doing, paying it forward. You're doing something that can enrich the lives of others to come and even yourself in the process. So for all of you that are listening and you want to share your thoughts and you want to become a part of this project, please make sure that you go and visit MartyHealth.com and, and share your information there. Thank so, you. Thank um, you Dr. Smith, got any, I was about, just about to give it back to you and say if you had any last words that you wanted to share. Uh, just that uh, right now we're in Atlanta. We're heading to Peoria. We are planning to be in other large areas where there's a large aggregation. But one of the points that was made last night is, Dr. Smith, once you build some level of trust with the community, we can do a lot of this by Zoom. So it's possible that we can get even more amplification of this online and through social media than we could ever get in a face-to-face uh, point of contact engagement. So I urge people who have an interest to please reach out to us and we'll do everything we can to make sure that you're part of what we're doing because we think this mission is an important one. righty. Then with that, we will conclude and make sure you all tune in to the next episode of the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. We hope that you will leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, a new episode is coming out next Monday. So please tune in and enjoy.